Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds, to another amazing episode within the Cardio Oncology series. Today, we're going to be talking about racial and ethnic disparities in the field. This is Dan Amender. We will be discussing the data around disparities in care and outcomes in cardio-oncology, as well as some strategies to bridge these gaps with an extraordinary group. Alrighty, so let's get started. And before I do that, I am thrilled to introduce series co-chair, Dr. Giselle Suero Obrero, cardiology fellow at MGH. Welcome, Giselle. Thank you so much, Dan. In Cardio Nerds, I am so glad that you can join us today for this very important discussion. This episode was planned by our amazing fit lead, Dr. Rachel Ullman, who is a cardiology fellow at UCLA. Rachel is also one of the authors, the first author, in fact, of one of the first papers in the topic of equity in cardio-oncology. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you, Dan and Giselle, for inviting me to join the Cardio Nerds for the next installment in this exciting Cardio-onc series. It's a genuine pleasure to tonight introduce Dr. Javier Gomez Valencia, who joins us today as our expert discussant. Dr. Gomez Valencia is an assistant professor of medicine, the director of cardio-oncology services, and the director of structural imaging at John H. Stronger Jr. Hospital of Cook County. He serves as a member of the Chicago Citywide Cardio-oncology rounds, which was started in 2019 by a group of cardio-oncology program directors from academic medical centers in Chicago, as well as the city's major community-based health systems. Dr. Gomez Valencia, we're thrilled you can join us to discuss racial and gender disparities in cardio-oncology. Thank you, Rachel, and thanks for the invitation to participate in this program. It's an absolute pleasure to join you, Dan and Giselle, tonight for this important discussion regarding disparities in care and outcomes in cardio-oncology. I'm very passionate about the field of cardio-oncology, and I'm even more passionate about addressing the issue of disparities in cardio-oncology care. So. As you mentioned, here in Chicago, we've been lucky to create a working group in the city through the efforts of several different cardio-oncology program directors. And it's allowed us to share different experiences and discuss different topics and kind of grow with each other. So yeah, I'm very excited to be here tonight and look forward to the discussion. So to kick up our discussion tonight, I was hoping that we could start with some context. We know that there is a disproportionate burden of illness in both cancer and cardiovascular disease that affects racial and ethnic minority groups and lower income communities. We also understand that these disparities are primarily driven by the social, economic, geographic, and cultural factors comprising social determinants of health, which in turn are modulated by sex, gender, and structural racism. As cardio-oncology has emerged to balance cancer treatment with the prevention and management of cardiac disease, intersectional disparities in that overlap of oncologic and cardiovascular care unfortunately remain poorly understood. Today, we'll discuss some points addressing these very topics. Before jumping in, let's ensure we're starting from the place of shared understanding. In our discussion, we'll refer to cardiotoxicity as the adverse effects of cancer treatment on cardiovascular health will refer to racial and ethnic populations with the understanding that race and ethnicity are social constructs that reference diverse groups of people. Now, different categorizations of these people do not address ancestry, genetic admixture, immigration status, or regional communities. We will refer to sex and gender minorities, that's SGM, 
to refer to the LGBTQI plus groups, acknowledging the unique experiences, health behaviors, and disparities in cardiovascular and oncologic care related to this population. For more on implications of sexual orientation and gender identity on ourselves, our colleagues, and our patients, definitely check out episode number 197 for an eye-opening discussion. Thank you so much, Dean and Rachel, for that important context as we start our discussion. Now it's time to staff some of our patients from the Cardinerics Cardio-Oncology Clinic. Our first patient is a 72-year-old man with a history of coronary artery disease, diabetes, which is uncontrolled, hyperlipidemia, and prior tobacco use, who immigrated from Peru 30 years ago and is unfortunately newly diagnosed with a high-risk multiple myeloma. He is ineligible for a stem cell transplant due to his poor functional status. And with the support of his family, he's now being treated with bortezomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone. He's having no cardiopulmonary symptoms at this time and is tolerating his regimen very well. Dr. Gomez Valencia, how will you approach the intake of this patient? And do you have any suggestions for assessing his social determinants of health and the way that they may impact his care? So this is a very interesting case, and it resembles a lot of patients that we see in our day-to-day practice. The initial assessment of this patient should include a thorough evaluation of his baseline cardiovascular risk, the potential risks associated with his cancer treatment, and identification of the best strategies to minimize or mitigate those cardiovascular risks before, during, and after his treatment. In that regard, his most significant risk factors based on the description are his age, being 72, history of prior coronary artery disease, uncontrolled diabetes, and his dyslipidemia, as well as his prior tobacco use. The multiple myeloma regimen that the patient was started on, which includes bortezomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone, in combination with the patient's intrinsic risk factors, make this patient a high-risk patient for cardiovascular complications during his treatment. Importantly, though, as you mentioned, this patient also should be evaluated carefully for potential social and structural vulnerabilities. And as a matter of fact, I think this evaluation of potential social and structural vulnerabilities should be incorporated into routine care of this patient, not just as something that is done depending on the characteristics of the patient, but it should be done as a routine because these factors have a significant impact on outcomes. These vulnerabilities include race and ethnicity. In this case, the patient is of a Hispanic ethnicity. Healthcare access and the quality of the care they have access to. Place of residence, for example, whether a patient lives in a rural area or an inner city area in a suburb area, those patients have different risk profiles and different issues with access and other important uh, variables. And finally, another very important factor to consider is financial and economic stability. In this particular case, for example, it is important to establish whether there is a language barrier. He emigrated from Peru, uh, whether the patient is insured or not, and the coverage of that particular insurance, if he is. Issues that come up frequently regarding access is whether they have the ability to obtain adequate transportation back and forth to his clinical appointments, to the appointments for his treatment. And finally, also another issue that may not be as common, but we see when we treat patients that have significant social insecurities is food security. I've had patients who have told me that they rather not go to an appointment because they need to save the money because that's what they're going to use to eat for the next couple of days. So I think an assessment of the social vulnerabilities or potential vulnerabilities are very important as part of the risk stratification and profile of the patient. 
Another important thing to mention is that, excitingly, these conversations around disparities in cardio-oncology care and efforts to address patients' social determinants of health are increasing. Our patient was from Peru, and I wanted to discuss with you, Dr. Gomez, what do you think are specific barriers to cardio-oncology care that are unique to the Hispanic Latinx population? which is one of the largest ethnic groups in the United States and a group that you and I belong to. Yes. I think you point out to something very important, which is that the conversation about disparities, not only in cardio-oncology, but in healthcare in general, is becoming more frequent and there is more engagement from different stakeholders in the process. And that is actually reflected by the fact that more and more papers and more and more research is focused in this particular topic. To that effect, recently, the American Heart Association published a paper that addresses this issue directly. It's a scientific statement about equity in cardio-oncology care and research, and it actually provides a very nice framework about what is considered inequity in cardio-oncology, what are the specific considerations for regarding sex differences, cardiotoxicity in different populations, the African-American population, Hispanic population, the sex and gender minorities, and many others, which I think it's a reflection of where we are and the current environment regarding the interest in addressing diversity, inclusion, equity in the healthcare delivery, as well as potential limitations. Now, specifically about the Hispanic population, I think this is a very important question. Hispanics comprise about 19% of the U.S. population. So this makes this the largest ethnic minority in the country at the time. The most common healthcare challenges that this population faces include lack of insurance, there's a disproportionate large amount of uninsured patients among the Hispanic population, approximately 30%, versus about 11% for non-Hispanic whites. Additionally, there is frequently a language barrier that the Hispanic population faces. Also, there's poor access to healthcare for many reasons. Uh, there is a perceived discrimination that stems from structural racism that has been, let's say, present for some time. And moreover, the limited access to preventive care makes this population more likely to present at later stages of disease. And this is clearly associated with worse outcomes. Another important aspect that should be considered when addressing disparities in the Hispanic population is that although there are some characteristics of this population that are shared across the board, there are important differences that need to be considered. That is, different countries in Latin America have different traditions, different diets, different behaviors, different expectations. And so that leads to an overall different risk profile. Additionally, there is an impact on the conditions on which patients immigrate to the U.S. It's very different when you address a patient that's migrated to seek, let's say, further education and they have a good health literacy. They have insurance and good access despite being, you know, Hispanic and somebody that's migrated this country. Versus somebody that's coming to the U.S. looking for better opportunities under more difficult circumstances, less health literacy, perhaps with an uncertain migratory status. And so the risk profiles of those patients are going to be different. 
This means that further research addressing each specific subgroup of the Hispanic population is required to better understand, to get a bigger picture of the specific limitations that each subgroup has so that we can provide the best individualized care. I mean, that is the whole point of patient-centered care. And I think in this specific circumstances, when we have patients that are facing social vulnerabilities, this is not being applied as well as we could. So Dr. Gomez Valencia, what a helpful summary of the many challenges affecting Hispanic Latinx patients and the important reminder about differential risk profiles among subgroups within the Hispanic Latinx population. And we hope that there will, of course, be further research into those differential risk profiles moving forward. I'd like for us to talk about the next patient we're seeing in clinic today. This is a 64-year-old Black woman with a history of well-controlled hypertension, degenerative disc disease, and locally advanced HER2-positive invasive ductal carcinoma, now status post-partial mastectomy and adjuvant docetaxel, carboplatin, and trastuzumab, who's presenting to clinic with exertional dyspnea over the past few weeks. So her breast cancer was actually diagnosed five years ago in 2018, and she had been in remission since 2019. In fact, she was feeling so well that she didn't see her oncologist for a few years, and also because it wasn't easy to travel to the city from her distant town and also miss time from work. But last month, she reestablished care with her oncologist because of this new exertional dyspnea. Her surveillance mammography is normal, so her oncologist ultimately referred her to you, and she actually has never before seen a cardiologist. Dr. Gomez, how would you approach this patient and what elements of her history would you consider as risk factors for disparities in her cardio-oncology care? Again, another very interesting case that highlights how social determinants of health in a population at risk can lead to issues during the care of a patient. Potentially, this could have been prevented, provided adequate education, access, and resources. Um, as we have been discussing already, raises a major determinant of health. The African-American community has the highest mortality overall from cancer when compared with other races in the United States. Um, not only that, but if you look at the literature through several different investigations, it's been noted that African-American patients are about three times more likely to develop cardiotoxicity after cardiotoxic therapy. I mean, one of the biggest trials was done with anthracycline, but this definitely applies to other therapies like trastuzumab when compared with non-African-American patients, particularly non-Hispanic whites. So there is a clear uh, mortality disparity. I mean, not just mortality, but uh, morbidity among Black women with breast cancer as compared to white patients. And it is known that patients with HER2 positive breast cancer treated with trastuzumab are actually more likely to develop LV dysfunction than their white counterparts. And interestingly, this risk is present even after controlling for other variables like age, disease states, and cardiovascular risk factors. Another important issue in this case in particular, one issue that's highlighted is that because of her distant location, she had issues reaching her appointments or at least going to her appointments. And that made her decide, in addition to feeling well, to not go to her follow-ups. And this is not uncommon. We see this frequently. So in part education and in part facilitating that access is one of the big things that we need to provide for this specific subgroups like the African-American population in this case, because we know that they have 
increased risk. We know that they, if not followed carefully, if not treated comprehensively, not only for her medical issues, but also for her social issues, for their social issues, they will have worse outcomes. And that's where I think we as healthcare providers and where institutions can make a difference. Again, this is a patient that unfortunately it's more common than we would like or this situation. But again, it does reflect the current status of what we see in cardio-oncology care. Thank you so much for sharing that, Dr. Gomez. Definitely have to, you know, recognize that there are definitely going to be unfortunate cases that we have to identify and do better with. So very important bringing that to the forefront of this discussion. So let's shift gears and talk about a few other concepts by using a case that sort of illustrates several other very important points with regards to this discussion. So let's talk about a 45-year-old transgender man with a history of hypothyroidism, asthma, and a childhood ALL, now in remission, and he's referred to by his PCP after developing dyspnea and lower extremity edema. He's found to have newly depressed left ventricular systolic function with an EF of 35% on TTE. His chemotherapy regimen had included doxorubicin, but after going into remission, he had felt well enough that he stopped seeing his doctors regularly. As you speak to him further, he also notes that regular medical care has been made more challenging by his not having found a provider with whom he feels comfortable in years, given his transition about 10 years ago. So Dr. Gomez, how does this patient's story inform your understanding of newly diagnosed heart failure? And what's your approach to a patient like this? This is a very important case, I think, and it highlights something that we will be seeing more and more often. Not only in cardio-oncology care, but I think in general cardiovascular medicine, as well as I think in all other fields of healthcare, which is providing care for the sexual and gender minority community. Some of the social factors that create barriers for the optimal cardio-oncology care of this population are clearly related to social stressors. And those come from stigmatization, discrimination by society, structural discrimination, and the lack of expertise of a lot of healthcare providers in addressing cardio-oncology care in this subset of patients. I think the fact that the patient was not able to find a provider with whom he feels comfortable led him to not have an adequate follow-up and surveillance. And that in combination, again, with like the previous case, with the fact that they felt better after treatment, which is a success, but additional education and the ability for these patients to feel comfortable going back and seeing their providers is crucial. So based on his inability to feel comfortable, he couldn't have adequate follow-up and surveillance, which subsequently led to the patient having what appears to be doxorubicin-induced cardiomyopathy with a significantly reduced ejection fraction, 35%. And, you know, it is likely that if the patient had encountered a provider with whom he felt comfortable, he would have likely continued follow-up and potentially would have been able to detect an initial drop in EF or some symptoms early on and provided adequate treatment for the patient. So, you know, I think the story and particularly in this case, what is known to be a limitation or a barrier for this population led to, again, you know, the patient developing complications of his treatment and not being detected early on. This has been a great discussion on different drivers of disparities in cardio-oncology care that are um, encompassing not only racial, ethnic, and gender disparities, but also social determinants of health, limited access to follow-up because of insurance issues, also structural racism and environmental and social issues. 
And one another important point that we would like to discuss with you, Dr. Gomez Valencia, is that some of these factors that create health inequities in cardio-oncology care are not only related to the clinical aspect, but that they also translate into research. As we know, there is a huge need for learning more and growing our cardio-oncology science. And there is a lack of research on how these different aspects, either social determinants of health or ethnic and sex-based differences, are actually impacting what we know or what we can improve in our field. There's also very remarkable, like, underrepresentation of minorities in clinical trials. And we were wondering if you can share with us a little bit of your thoughts and what are the reasons for this underrepresentation of minority groups and women in clinical trials and cardio-oncology? Absolutely. Another very important point. First of all, where you say the underrepresentation of minorities and groups that are at risk for social vulnerabilities is very evident. Landmark trials in cardio-oncology have had a very minimal percentage of racial and ethnic minorities. And I think a good example of this is the SOCOR trial, for example, which was published not too long ago. And I'm not going to go into the details of the trial, but the proportion of African-American patients in that trial, I believe it was about 2%. And, you know, I mean, that is an extremely low proportion of patients. And it's difficult to apply a conclusion to that group with that degree of representation. The Hispanic proportion of patients in that trial, I believe, was about 9% or 10%. So all of these minorities are underrepresented in these trials. I think that's clear. Some of the reasons for that have to do with, again, difficulty with access, reaching facilities, hospitals, less reliability for follow-up, of course, because, uh, again, Transport is an issue, lack of understanding by those individuals and from different minority groups. Um, And importantly, I think there's a certain degree of mistrust, particularly from the African-American population when it comes to being enrolled in clinical trials. So in order to address this underrepresentation of minority groups in clinical trials, it's very important to build a good rapport with the patients. We need to give them confidence. We need to make them feel comfortable. And we've discussed this as well. We need to also provide good education and facilitate the access to healthcare for these populations, because otherwise it's going to be very challenging to enroll them and follow them in trials, not at their fault, but just the system and the, the social vulnerabilities that they experience limit their ability to participate in these trials effectively. So the problem with this is that the conclusions from these trials are not going to be generalizable. And not only that, applying conclusions to the specific subgroups is going to be based on a simple extrapolation and not really on data on the specific subgroups. So it's a challenge, but I think we are starting to work on that. I think it's evident for the emerging group of researchers in cardiology and cardio-oncology that this is an issue that needs to be addressed. So I'm optimistic, but we have to continue our work on this specific reasons for the underrepresentation of patients in clinical trials in cardio-oncology. Thank you, Dr. Gomez Valencia, for sharing those really crucial insights on an adequate representation in clinical trials and our other research spaces and for helping us unpack those disparities. We're curious to hear in regards to our research spaces as well as our clinical care generally, 
Do you have any suggestions for how individual clinicians or institutions can help address some of these structural inequities? And on a larger scale, what potential solutions excite you most on a policy level? So that is a very good question. I think for the individuals interested in doing research or advocacy, which I think is crucial in cardio-oncology to bridge the existing gaps and disparities, my advice or what I would recommend is, number one, as we address these disparities, we have to work on strategies to, again, make the patients feel part of the process. You know, we need to let them know that we're working together and that these minorities, although they're difficult to enroll in clinical trials for all the reasons that we previously discussed, when they feel part of the team, when they feel seen, when they feel respected, and they feel like this research is going to make a difference, which is part of the things I think has been difficult to relay to them because, of course, they're facing several challenges socially. Once we're able to do that, I think they're going to want to participate more and more. Then it's on us to make sure that not only we enroll a diverse group of patients in cardio-oncology research, but also perform specific research in these subgroups. Going forward, we'll have to focus on specific research in African-American population with specific cardio-oncology treatments and interventions and see how they respond in addition to other populations. The same thing with Hispanics. This will help in clarifying their specific risk profiles and how they respond to treatment, how they respond to specific interventions. And it's going to grant, it's going to give us a much more comprehensive understanding of the impact that we can make in this population with our research and our therapeutic interventions, as well as diagnostic. As far as potential solutions that are needed at a policy level, I mean, not only at a policy level, I believe that important interventions are required at all levels, starting from the individual provider. We need to be more aware of the importance of understanding, number one, the existence of these disparities. I think there's a great amount of work that has already been done in this regard. Number two, the impact of these disparities and finally how to address them and minimize them. At the institutional level, I think it's very important to diversify the workforce so that the patients can feel more comfortable. You know, we had patients who were African-American. We had a patient that was transgender. So you know, having a diverse workforce will allow those patients to be more comfortable and feel more represented. And that actually will improve significantly, I think, follow-up, access, compliance with therapies, and at the end, what's important for us, which is outcomes. Finally, I think on a larger scale, which is in my opinion, probably the most difficult, but also probably the most important, I believe that we as healthcare providers need to be more vocal with the policymakers. We need to get together as a group and advocate for our patients by explaining to policymakers the importance and the impact of creating an adequate legal and administrative framework that eliminates all those barriers to access to optimal healthcare for this many underrepresented and vulnerable groups that currently have severe limitations to access and consequently worse outcomes. Definitely promoting a diversified physician workforce, as you mentioned, intentionally diversifying our clinical trial workforce and also engaging at the level of the community, either health workers and patient navigators, as well as having either institutions or at a policy level 
different ways where we can provide more culturally sensitive experience in healthcare and clinical research for our cardio-oncology patients is incredibly important. And when I think of diversity or equity, means not only the people that are part of certain groups, but like it's an issue for everybody. And I think when we put together the needs of the cardio-oncology field, one of the biggest things is like, how do we motivate the next generation of physicians in general to bring equity into cardiology, oncology, or cardio-oncology care? That being said, we're very biased in terms of cardio-oncology. So what would you say to motivate Oh, why do you think is important cardio-oncology for the next generation of physicians? Yes, that's an excellent point. So I think what's really motivating and what should motivate us is right now the field is primed. Cardio-oncology has been growing and I think it is at a point where, you know, it is ready and it's primed for starting to make significant differences in our population. So far, we've been in a process of gathering data, seeing where we are in terms of cardio-oncology. There are several papers that have started to characterize different populations, their response to different treatments. And I think now is the time to address these disparity gaps so that then we can work effectively in creating adequate therapies to each subgroup. So I think at this point, what is exciting to me is that people who are coming now into the cardio-oncology field are coming into a field that is very aware of where the limitations are, very aware of where the gaps are, because we've done a good amount of research to identify those. And it's ready for the development of additional research and based on that research, different interventions that make an impact and a difference. As we've gathered more and more data, we've created a robust framework of where we are. Now we have to be clear and identify where do we want to go. And I think the process is already ongoing about where do we want to make an impact. And this particular limitations in terms of social disparities are actually a big part of it. We have identified that this is a clear area where that impacts outcomes. And for the people who are coming now addressing these issues and you know, working on a research that specifically works on these populations and improves outcomes is going to make a huge difference. For me in particular, it's very rewarding when I see patients who are at risk like this and we are able to diagnose them early despite the difficulties, institute treatment and surveillance that works for the patient, but also work for us. So, you know, sometimes we have to balance resources, but when we're able to maintain the patients engaged and make them comfortable, ensure follow-up, and we end up with a good outcome, I think that's one of the most rewarding things that, you know, any cardio-oncologist can feel. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Gomez. Your excitement for the field is clearly palpable. So I guess that leads us into our next classic cardiac question. What makes your heart flutter about cardio-oncology? Okay, as, as you know, as a physician who works, I, I work predominantly with an underserved population. The Cook County Health System is a public health system. So about 50% of the patients I see are uninsured. And so evidently there are several challenges, but in this particular environment that I work, uh, it kind of goes uh, along with what I said before. In the cases when patients face lots of challenges, social determinants of health, you know, with complex cardiovascular issues and complex oncologic issues, but we manage to address all those difficulties, 
We managed to make early diagnosis, institute best possible therapies in conjunction with our oncology colleagues, and we managed to achieve a good outcome or the, you know, individual and institutional and systemic challenges faced by the patient are addressed. My heart not only flutters, it actually starts dancing. And uh, yeah, it inevitably brings a smile to my face every time I, I, I encounter those cases. Uh, and then it makes all the struggles and efforts worth it because we do face lots of challenges dealing with populations that are struggling. But at the end of the day, if you make a difference, everything is worth it. It just occurred to me as you were sharing your incredible insight, Dr. Gomez Valencia, that I wanted to also specifically call attention to the ongoing gaps in understanding about disparities among API or Asian Pacific Islander populations, that there is a marked paucity of research within these populations in the cardio-oncology space, and that we hope additional studies investigating those particular subpopulations can also be added to the areas of interest and growth in the cardio-oncology field so we can better understand inequities those subpopulations face in order to better manage and intervene upon them. Absolutely. Thank you, everyone, for a wonderful discussion on a very important topic related to inequities in cardio-oncology. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. And keep tuned with the rest of the episodes in the cardio-oncology series. Thank you, CardioNerds, for joining. Thanks for tuning in to another CardioNerds episode. The audio editing for this episode was performed by me, Shivani Reddy. I'm an intern in the CardioNerds Academy House Eindhoven and a fourth-year medical student at Western Michigan University School of Medicine. I invite you to check out the episode page for show notes and references. If you found this episode informative, please consider subscribing to CardioNerds on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a review. It helps us spread the word and further our goal to democratize cardiovascular education. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed on our show and site do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. All CardioNerds content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by CardioNerds. Stay tuned for more engaging conversations and explorations in our upcoming episodes. And now, it's time to make like an S2 and split. Boop. Boop.